So, Squirrel will say something about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. he will. He will. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. This is a pre-recorded episode because I am off doing my civic duty. Yes, I have jury duty today. I'm recording this at noon on Thursday, and uh, as of yet, I have not received a phone call telling me that the case is settled, so I am assuming that I am going to have to report to duty this morning. So here is today's episode. It is Friday, January 27th, 2023, and this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to Scripture history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every day at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And you can download the audio podcast just about everywhere you find audio podcasts. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there you are certain to find something worth listening to. Big sip of coffee. Um, even <laughs> Excuse me. Supposed to sip the coffee, not inhale it. High caffeine, low oxygen content, not to be breathed. Oh, sorry about that. Okay, um, so it's Federalist Friday today. We're going to be looking at Federalist number 15 as we continue to work our way through the Federalist Papers and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, America's founding documents. And just something that occurred to me as I was preparing my notes this week for this episode. Now, I do not know if this is a common Mormon belief or if this was just the belief of this particular individual, a co-worker I used to have, he had a belief, he was firmly convinced that the Constitution of the United States was a divinely inspired document, that basically it was perfect and it was handed down by God to America and that America was this divine nation in a direct theological sense, almost a, a new Israel. As I said, I don't know if that is uh, a common Mormon belief. It seems kind of odd to me. If it's a per perfect document. Why would you include uh, provisions for um, amending it? <laughs> so I just, you know... He, and he had, you know, a very almost superstitiously high respect for the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers who drafted the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, who met at the Constitutional Convention, who signed the Declaration of Independence, who fought in the Revolutionary War, these were, they were giants of history, and they are... 
men who I've had an enormous, enormous, a huge effect on our, uh, on our country and on our society and, and everything. And so we, we must honor them as important historical figures. And they were certainly very intelligent and in many cases wise. Now, not all of them were Bible-believing Christians by any means. Nor was the product of their deliberations a divinely inspired document. Um, the Constitution is not Scripture. And so as we look at the Constitution and as we look at the Federalist Papers, I want us to keep in mind the fact that the this is on a completely different level than the, the Bible studies we're doing on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And even the theological studies we're doing on Thursdays. Um, but the, the 1689 is not an inspired document either. Um, and I've mentioned several places where I disagree with it. But by God's providence... I believe the Founding Fathers put together the best form of human government that has yet to be devised. This is the, the United States of America and our governing documents, our, our founding, um, by God's providence, we ended up with the best government that has ever existed on the planet and by that, I'm saying, you know, not the current residents of Washington, D.C., but the design. The This is how our government is supposed to work. Now, it it hasn't always, and, and rarely these days, operates as designed. But the design is the best designed government that we've ever had on the planet. And so I do give the founders credit for that. And so as we're going through the Federalist Papers and the, 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 these founding documents, I just want us to keep that in mind, that this is not at all on the same level as the Bible study we do other days of the week. It is much more of a historical study and... The philosophy of government is important and understanding why they did what they did, why they set it up the way they set it up is also very important. And that's one of the reasons, like I said, we're doing this on, on Fridays because this is no longer taught in our schools as it once was. And so I'm doing it here on the podcast to if you if you've never studied our founding documents before then this is a good thing for you to hear this. If you have, it's a good review because it's probably something you haven't thought about in a while. Um, but if you're younger than, than 30, 35 years old, I doubt if you even had this in school unless you were homeschooled, <laughs> in which case you may have had a good dose of it. All right, well, it is Federalist Friday, and because we're not doing a Bible study, we are reading from... 
John MacArthur's daily readings from the life of Christ. We're doing readings from this devotional on Mondays and Fridays. We are in volume one. Um, There are three volumes. Each one is 365 devotionals. So if we're just doing two a week, we can go through these three books for many years. But it's good stuff and it's good thought. And so we're going to read through that. Then we're going to look at Federalist number 15. But we will begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Excuse me just a minute. I don't need that light on. (laughs) It was giving me a glare off my iPad. All right, here is our prayer of confession. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now, the reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. True Baptism, Christ Immersed. And the verse is Matthew 3:16a. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Dr. MacArthur writes, Christians, especially new believers, sometimes wonder what mode of baptism Jesus underwent, and therefore wonder which is correct for them to experience. Since genuine baptism represents cleansing from sin and symbolizes the believer's identification with Christ's death and resurrection, the ordinance must involve immersion, not merely sprinkling or pouring. The Greek word baptizo literally means to dip or submerge an object into water or another liquid. Confusion regarding the word's meaning resulted largely because Latin and more modern language translations of Scripture simply transliterated many occurrences of the Greek word. Until the Middle Ages, the Christian church knew and officially practiced no form of baptism but immersion. Then the Roman Catholic Church formally introduced and sanctioned baptism by sprinkling or pouring. Prior to that, even the great Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote, In immersion, the setting forth of the burial of Christ is more plainly expressed, in which this manner of baptizing is more commendable. That Jesus came up immediately from the water indicates he had been completely in the water, in other words, almost surely immersed. John baptized people in the Jordan River, Matthew 3.6, and in other places where there was much water, John 3.23. That would not make sense if he was baptizing only by pouring or sprinkling. Cross-reference, Acts 8.38 and 39. Unlike immersion, those other modes just do not fully symbolize dying to sin and being raised to new life. Ask yourself, 
Baptism is a one-time exercise in obedience, but the reality of being crucified with Christ and raised to walk in a newness of life is an ongoing experience. How do you remind yourself of this on your average day? Pray that the gift of God's grace never loses its wonder. Um, I will admit that one of the things that disappointed me, one of the very few things that disappoints me about the New Legacy Standard Bible is that they chose not to translate baptizo, but to keep it as baptism and baptize instead of translating it as immerse. I think that would have been helpful. I understand that might have hurt Bible sales <laughs> because it would have uh, limited it to uh, those with a baptistic theology um, because your Presbyterians wouldn't have bought it. <laughs> because um, they would hate to be reminded of the fact of what the Scripture actually says. But that's neither here nor there. We will move on now to Federalist Paper number 15. The insufficiency of the present Confederation to preserve the Union for the Independent Journal by Alexander Hamilton. To the people of the state of New York, in the course of the preceding papers, I have endeavored, my fellow citizens, to place before you in a clear and convincing light the importance of union to your political safety and happiness. I have unfolded to you a complication of dangers to which you would be exposed should you permit that sacred knot which binds the people of America together to be severed or dissolved by ambition or by avarice, by jealousy or by misrepresentation. In the sequel of the inquiry through which I propose to accompany you, the truths intended to be inculcated will receive further confirmation from facts and arguments hitherto unnoticed. If the road over which you will still have to pass should in some places appear to you tedious or irksome, you will recollect that you are in quest of information on a subject the most momentous which, you can, engage the attention, which can engage the attention of a free people that the field through which you have traveled is in itself spacious, and that the difficulties of the journey have been unnecessarily increased by the mazes with which sophistry has beset the way. So what he's saying is, I've already talked about quite a few important things, and I'm going to talk about more in this series of articles. And you may think that it's not worth it, but the subject matter is so important that this is something you should pay attention to. That's my translation of Hamilton's words so far. Hamilton continues, It will be my aim to remove the obstacles from your progress as a in as compendious a manner as it can be done without sacrificing utility to dispatch. So he used how many multiple multi-syllable words to say he's going to try to keep this simple. In pursuance of the plan which I have laid down for the discussion of the subject, the point next in order to be examined is the insufficiency of the present confederation to the preservation of the Union. It may perhaps be asked what need there is of reasoning or proof to illustrate a position which is not either controverted or doubted to which the understandings and feelings of all classes of men assent, 
and which in substance is admitted by the opponents as well as the friends of the new constitution. So basically he's saying, basically he's saying that he's going to now deal with a topic of which many people are, are not disagreeing. And so, you know, why talk about it? And, and now he's going to give us that reason. It must in truth be acknowledged that however these may differ in other respects, they in general appear to harmonize in this sentiment, at least that there are material imperfections in our national system and that something is necessary to be done to rescue us from impending anarchy. The facts that support this opinion are no longer objects of speculation. They have forced themselves upon the sensibility of the people at large and have at length extorted from those whose mistaken policy has had the principal share in precipitating the extremity at which we are arrived, a reluctant confession of the reality of those defects in the scheme of our federal government, which have been long pointed out and regretted by the intelligent friends of the Union. Basically, everybody agrees there's a problem and something has to be done. Um, he continues... We may indeed with propriety be said to have reached almost the last stage of national humiliation. So basically, it's the, the, the confederation of states is falling apart. The Articles of Confederation have not established a government that can last or a nation that can be strong and prosperous and, and united. And, and it's reaching this last stage. And he calls it a national humiliation basically says it's embarrassing hamilton continues there's scarcely anything that can wound the pride or degrade the character of an independent nation which we do not experience are there engagements to the performance of which we are held by every tie respectable among men these are the subjects of constant and unblushing violation do we owe debts to foreigners and to our own citizens contracted in a time of imminent peril for the preservation of our political existence? These remain without any proper or satisfactory provision for their discharge. So we borrowed money during the Revolutionary War. We haven't paid it back and there's no plan to. So there are foreign powers to which the United States owed money and there were citizens who, who held essentially savings bonds who had loaned money to the government and there was no plan to pay them back no plan and no ability have we valuable territories and important posts in the possession of a foreign power which by express stipulations ought long since to have been surrendered um, some of the territory that had been acknowledged to belong to the united states in the treaty of paris which ended the Revolutionary War and established peace between the United States and Britain, had yet to be returned to American possession from the British. These are still retained, Hamilton continues, to the prejudice of our interests, not less than of our rights. Are we in a condition to resent or to repeal the aggression or repel the aggression? We have neither troops nor treasury nor government. Are we even in a condition to remonstrate with dignity the just imputations on our own faith in respect to the same treaty ought first to be removed? 
Are we entitled by nature and, nature and compact to a free participation in the navigation of the Mississippi? Spain excludes us from it. Is public credit an indispensable resource in time of public danger? We seem to have abandoned its cause as desperate and irretrievable. So here he's saying that, you know, we have no, no ability to fund a military. Therefore, we have no means by which to evict the British from the territory that they still hold. We have no means to resist Spain's attempts to block navigation on the Mississippi. So they were, they were facing difficulties that the Articles of Confederation did not give the, the government at that time the ability to deal with. He says, is commerce of importance to national wealth? Ours is at the lowest point of declension. Is respectability in the eyes of foreign powers a safeguard against foreign encroachments? The imbecility of our government even forbids them to treat with us. Our ambassadors abroad are mere page pageants of mimic sovereignty. Basically says, our government is so weak that foreign governments don't even care to negotiate with us because we can't do anything. And our, our ambassadors and foreign governments are looked at as mere actors on the stage, um, mimicking sovereignty, pretending to be ambassadors from a real country. Think about that. That, that's a, that, that goes back up to that national humiliation that he talked about it a few minutes ago. Is a violent and unnatural decrease in the value of land a symptom of national distress? The price of improved land in most parts of the country is much lower than can be accounted for by the quality of wasteland in a market and can only be fully explained by that want of private and public confidence which are so alarmingly prevalent among all ranks and which have a direct tendency to depreciate property of every kind. I think we would see this as a modern example as property values in, say, Detroit. Um, a a crime-ridden area that people don't feel safe in, so they are not willing to pay what would be the going rate for real estate, because they don't feel like their real estate investment would be safe. And he was saying that was basically the problem that was going on. People didn't feel safe to pay full price for land because they were unsure that that investment would be allowed to continue or that they would be you know, facing hardship beyond their control that should have been ameliorated by the government, meaning basically foreign invasion and whatnot, and even crime at home. You know, if you're, if you're having trouble with, with criminals at home um, and the government's not doing anything about it, you have a problem. Look at our current situation on the southern border. It says, is private credit the friend and patron of industry? That most useful kind, which relates to borrowing and lending, is reduced within the narrowest limits, and this still more from an opinion of insecurity than from a scarcity of money. So people are not lending money 
because they feel insecure. People are not borrowing money because they feel insecure in their ability to pay it back. Um, and so this is affecting commerce because the, the, the loaning and borrowing of money is one of the engines of commerce. That you, ha you have a good idea, you think you can make money with something, but you don't have the money to do it. And so you borrow the money. The people that lend you the money think your idea is good, that you'll make money on it, and they will get their money back with interest. They'll make money. That's how borrowing and lending is supposed to do. But if you are insecure in your belief that the person can pay you back, you're less likely to loan money. And that hinders commerce. To shorten an enumeration of particulars which can afford neither pleasure nor instruction, it may in general be demanded what indication is there of national disorder, poverty, and insufficiency that could befall a community so peculiarly blessed with natural advantages in we, which does not form a part of the dark catalog of our public misfortunes. Basically, Hamilton's saying here that the, the country is so wealthy in natural resources and in natural advantages that the current economic distress makes no sense apart from a weak national government and the problems associated with a weak national government. That is what's depressing American industry, is what Hamilton is saying. He continues... This is the melancholy situation to which we have been brought by those very maxims and councils which would now deter us from adopting the proposed Constitution, and which, not content with having conducted us to the brink of a precipice, seem resolved to plunge us into the abyss that awaits us below. Here, my countrymen, impelled by every motive that ought to influence an enlightened people, let us make a firm stand for our safety, our tranquility, our dignity, our reputation. Let us at last break the fatal charm which has too long seduced us from the paths of felicity and prosperity. Here Hamilton is saying that those who are opposed to the Constitution are the same people who promoted the Articles of Confederation which are failing and basically he's saying, we need to try another way. We need to step back and, and look at this anew. And what we've been doing hasn't worked. And the people who are against what we're trying to do are the same ones who were in favor of what we've been doing that hadn't worked. And so are we going to plunge over the edge of the abyss that we're heading for? Or should we perhaps change course? He continues, It is true, as has been before observed, that facts, too stubborn to be resisted, have produced a species of general assent to the abstract proposition that there exists material defects in our national system. But the usefulness of the, con of the concession on the part of the old adversaries of federal measures, is destroyed by a strenuous opposition to a remedy upon the only principles that can give it a chance of success. So 
while everyone seems to admit that the government is weak and that weak government is causing problems for the nation, those who are opposed to the new constitution are not willing to admit that their ideas are the problem. <laughs> Continues, while they admit that the government of the United States is destitute of energy, they contend against conferring upon it those powers which are requisite to supply that energy. They seem still to aim at things repugnant and irreconcilable in an augmentation of federal authority without a diminution of state authority, at sovereignty in the Union and complete independence in the members. They still, in fine, seem to cherish with blind devotion the political monster of an imperium in imperio. This renders a full display of the principal defects of the Confederation necessary in order to show that the evils we experience do not proceed from minute or partial imperfections, but from fundamental errors in the structure of the building, which cannot be amended otherwise than by an alteration in the first principles and main pillars of the fabric. So he's saying they, they see the need for a more powerful federal government. And they admit to that, that the federal government is failing. But they're unwilling to give the powers that the federal government needs in order to achieve its aims. And at the same time, they're unwilling to see a corresponding diminishment in the powers of the states. Because in order to be united, you have to give up independence which makes perfect sense. Um, one of the biggest problems in marriage in modern times is the whole idea that the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There's this whole idea that, you know, I can still be an individual in a marriage instead of being part of a marriage. And that's one of the reasons for the high divorce rate is failure to understand there's no longer an I, it's always we. And I mean, I think we're all affected by that at times that we just lose sight of that. But, but that in order to be united, you have to give up independence. And, and, you know, the, and in the, in the model for marriage in Genesis, we see that the two become one flesh. The two become one. They have to give up independence in order to become the union. Well, that applies to, to states and national governments as well. The states are going to have to give up some independence in order for the national government to take place. And indeed, they have to become a part of the whole instead of their own individual system. And he says uh, there, there, this idea is that, that we can't just tweak it here or there. We've got to change the underlying conception of the federal government. We can't, it can't be minute or partial imperfections. The problem is fundamental errors in the structure of the building. And so it needs to be altered, an alteration in first principles and the main pillars of the fabric. He continues, the great and radical vice in the construction of the existing confederation is in the principles of legislation for states or governments in their corporate or collective capacities 
and as contradistinguished from the individuals of which they consist. That's basically what I was just saying. Though this principle does not run through all the powers delegated to the Union, yet it pervades and governs those on which the efficacy of the rest depends, except as to the rule of appointment, the United States has an indefinite discretion to make requisitions for men and money, but they have no authority to raise either, by regulation extending to the individual citizens of America. The consequence of this is that, though in theory their resolutions concerning these objects are law, constitutionally binding on the members of the Union, yet in practice they are mere recommendations which the states observe or disregard at their option. It is a singular instance of the capriciousness of the human mind that after all the admonitions we have had from experience on this head, there should still be found men who object to the new Constitution for deviating from a principle which has been found the bane of the old and which is in itself evidently incompatible with the idea of government, a principle in short which, if it is to be executed at all, must substitute the violent and sanguinary agency of the sword to the mild influence of the magistracy. Uh, basically, the, 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 the government under the Articles of Confederation was powerless. They could make laws, but they were not binding. They could make decisions regarding the raising of funds, taxes, for the for spending on legitimate government expenses, but they couldn't enforce those laws. And I said that that they uh, they did not have the power the 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 power of the sword, the power of compulsion upon the states in any way. And so that was one of the reasons why the government was failing. Can, Hamilton continues, There is nothing absurd or impractical in the idea of a league or alliance between independent nations for certain defined purposes precisely stated in a treaty regulating all the details of time, place, circumstance, and quantity, leaving nothing to future discretion, and depending for its execution on the good faith of the parties. So basically what he's saying here is there's nothing wrong with independent nations coming to agreements for particular purposes where everything is laid out and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and we're going to get together and take care of this. But that's not a government because the nations are independent. They're not being governed by a single entity. And there's, he's saying essentially that was the problem with the Confederacy. The, 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 the Articles of Confederation. They had gotten together and basically had a treaty um, between independent nations. They didn't have a national government. And so because they didn't have a true national government, the meetings of the delegates of the states, though they could decide whatever they wanted, they couldn't do anything. And that was the problem. He continues, compacts of this kind exist among all civilized nations, subject to the usual 
vicissitudes of peace and war, for observance and non-observance as the interests or passions of the contracting powers dictate. In the early part of the present century, there was an epidemical rage in Europe for this species of compacts, from which the politicians of the times fondly hoped for benefits which were never realized. With a view to establishing the equilibrium of power and the peace of that part of the world, all the resources of negotiation were exhausted. The triple and quadruple alliances were formed, but they were scarcely formed before they were broken, giving an instructive but afflicting lesson to mankind how little dependence is to be placed on treaties which have no other sanction than the obligations of good faith and which oppose general considerations of peace and justice to the impulse of any immediate interest or passion. Basically, he's saying treaties are basically worth the paper they're printed on. If the particular states in this country are disposed to stand in a similar relation to each other and to drop the project of a general discretionary superintendence, the scheme would indeed be pernicious and would entail upon us all the mischiefs which have been enumerated under the first head. But it would have the merit of being at least consistent and practicable, abandoning all views toward a confederate government. This would bring us to a simple alliance, offensive and defensive, and would place us in a situation to be alternate friends and enemies of each other as our mutual jealousies and rivalships nourished by the intrigue of foreign nations should prescribe us. So basically, if we're not going to have a real national government, then let's just be independent states in negotiated treaty alliances with each other for offense and defense. And those alliances would change over time and the states could go to war against each other and all of the problems that have been laid out so far in the Federalist Papers could be realized, but let's stop pretending to be a country. Let's stop pretending to be anything other than independent states. If that's what we want, then let's do that. But, he continues, if we are unwilling to be placed in this perilous situation, if we're unable, unwilling to put ourselves in that danger of having you know, the states warring against each other, then they need to do something. He says, if we still, ad still will adhere to the design of a national government, or, which is the same thing, of a superintending power under the direction of a common council, we must resolve to incorporate into our plan those ingredients which may be considered as forming the characteristic difference between a league and a government. We must extend the authority of the Union to the persons of the citizens, the only proper objects of government. Government implies the power of making laws. It is essential to the idea of a law that it be a attended with a sanction, or in other words, a penalty or punishment for disobedience. If there's no penalty for breaking the rules, there really are no rules. And it doesn't matter what the paper says. You can have a list of rules, but if nobody cares what they say and there's no penalty, there's no reward for obeying them and there's no penalty for disobeying them, you don't have rules. And so if we're going to have a government, 
We need to have a government that makes laws that are binding, that have sanctions for their disobedience, so that if you break the law, you are punished for breaking the law, which, of course, would... He's basically saying we need to give the government some teeth so that if people don't play nice, the government can bite them. He continues, if there be no penalty annexed to disobedience, the resolutions or commands which pretend to be laws will, in fact, amount to nothing more than advice or recommendation. This penalty, whatever it may be, can only be inflicted in two ways, by the agency of the courts and ministers of justice or by military force, by the coercion of the magistracy, or by the coercion of arms. The first kind can evidently apply only to men. The last kind must be necessary, must of necessity, be employed against bodies politic or communities or states. It is evident that there is no process of a court by which the observance of the laws can, in the last resort, be enforced. Sentences may be denounced against them for violations of their duty, but those sentences can only be carried into execution by the sword. And basically he's saying there has to be teeth because the only thing that keeps people from resisting the law is the enforcement of the law by armed enforcers. Even in a country that doesn't where the, the average policeman doesn't carry a gun. I'm thinking of, of the British Bobby, although they now have a lot more armed police than they used to. Even in a country like that, there's still the threat of violence. There's the coercion of arms. And, and that is the ultimately the only way laws can be enforced is by force. He continues, in an association where the general authority is confined to the collective bodies of the communities that compose it, every breach of the law must involve a state of war. A military execution must become the only instrument of civil obedience. Such a state of things can certainly not deserve the name of government, nor would any prudent man choose to commit his happiness to it. So basically saying that you can have states voluntarily submitting to a central government, or you can have a central government ruling by force over the states. Do you see the difference? Basically, he's talking about an imperial hegemony. This is the, 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 the if, if you don't play nice, the imperial stormtroopers come marching into town because the government is not representing you, it is ruling over you. But if the government represents you and you voluntarily submit to its decrees, then that's a different situation from the rule of force. He says, there was a time when we were told that breaches by the states of the regulation of the federal authority were not to be expected, that a sense of common interest would preside over the conduct of the respective members and would beget a full compliance with all the constitutional requirements of the Union. This language at the present day would appear as wild as a great part of what we now hear from the same quarter will be thought when we shall have received further lessons from that best oracle of wisdom, experience. 
in at all times betrayed an ignorance of the true springs by which human conduct is actuated and belied the original inducements to the establishment of civil power. Why has government been instituted at all? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. Do you think Hamilton understood the sinfulness of man? It's stick and carrot, folks. That's how people are governed. People, we say they, they ought to be governed by, by reason and justice and the dictates of conscience, yet they aren't. They need some form of constraint. Um, you know, self-restraint self is absolutely necessary to self-government. Has it been found, Hamilton continues, that bodies of men act with more rectitude or greater disinterestedness than individuals? <laughs> the contrary of this has been inferred by all accurate observers of the conduct of mankind, and the inference is founded upon obvious reasons. Regard to reputation has a less active influence when the infamy of a bad action is to be divided among a number than when it is to fall singly upon one. You see, it's easier to do bad things as part of a crowd. A spirit of faction, which is apt to mingle its poison in the deliberations of all bodies of men, will often hurry the persons of whom they are composed into improprieties and excesses for which they would blush in a private capacity. That's seen every day in certain news conferences from certain political bodies. Uh, where a spokesperson stands up and says things that are obviously not true. And were they to conduct their life with that same level of untruth, their friends and family would not trust them. But because they're doing it on behalf of a political entity, suddenly it becomes acceptable. Hamilton again. In addition to all this, there is in the nature of sovereign power an impatience of control that disposes those who are invested with the exercise of it to look with an evil eye upon all external attempts to restrain or direct its operations. From this spirit it happens that in every political association which is formed upon the principle of uniting in a common interest or a number of lesser sovereignties, there will be found a kind of eccentric tendency in the subordinate or inferior orbs by the operation of which there will be a perpetual effort in each to fly off from the common center. This tendency is not difficult to be accounted for. It has its origin in the love of power. Power controlled or abridged is almost always the rival and enemy of that power by which it is controlled or abridged. He's talking here about limited government. He's saying that it is the tendency of the governing to resist any restriction on their governing. And therefore, these restrictions need to have enough force to counteract the government, the governing bodies to keep them restricted. Um, 
and that was one of the reasons that they set up the balance of powers and everything in the in the uh, constitution so he's talking here about how how do we restrain a government we need to recreate create a government that is powerful enough to do the things that need to be done how do we then restrain that government to keep it from abusing that power this is see how timely this is this simple proposition will teach us how little reason there is to expect that the persons entrusted with the administration of the affairs of the particular members of a confederacy will at all times be ready with perfect good humor and an unbiased regard to the public wheel to execute the resolutions or decrees of the general authority. The reverse of this results from the con con constitution of human nature. So he's saying not only will people seek to acquire to themselves power beyond what they should have. The states would seek to acquire to themselves power beyond what they should have, which would circumvent and short-circuit the power of the national government. So again, this is all coming back to this, this same thing. That, that all power needs to be limited. All power needs to be governed. He continues, The rulers of the respective members, whether they have a constitutional right to do it or not, will undertake to judge the propriety of the measures themselves. They will consider the conformity of the thing proposed or required to their immediate interests or aims, the momentary conveniences or inconveniences would, that would attend its adoption. All this will be done and in a spirit of interested and suspicious scrutiny without that knowledge of national circumstances and reasons of state, which is essential to a right judgment, and with that strong predilection in favor of local objects, which can hardly fail to mislead the decision. The same process must be repeated in every member of which the body is constituted, and the execution of the plans framed by the councils of the whole will always fluctuate on the discretion of the ill-informed and prejudiced opinion of every part. Those who have been conversant in the proceedings of popular assemblies who have seen how difficult it often is, where there is no exterior pressure of circumstances to bring them to harmonious resolutions on important points, will readily conceive how impossible it must be to induce a number of such assemblies deliberating at a distance from each other at different times and under different impressions long to cooperate in the same views and pursuits. Saying national interests would be trumped by local interests. And it didn't doesn't matter how important the national interests are, the local interests would trump it. Um, and he used an example in one of the earlier Federalist papers of, you know, if the United States went to war. So let's say we went to war with Canada. It used to be a very far-fetched idea, but looking at Canada these days, I'm not quite sure it is anymore. I'm sure Justin Trudeau would gladly conquer us if he could. Um, just give him more people to dictate over. But let's say the United States was going to war with Canada. So we have... You know, Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on east. 
every country that borders can every state that borders Canada, we would have a keen interest in the defense of the United States because we're on the front lines. But Florida, Texas, Louisiana, California, they might be, you know, no, we need to, these resources are better spent here. So they would not contribute to the defense of the nation because it would cost them something. And they could not see the short-term benefit of it. Now, obviously, military conflict is a much more obvious need than some other needs might be. But I'm just showing how the location of the state and their own local interests might affect their decision to participate in the national government. And that's what, that's what Hamilton is getting to. He says there's no, no external pressure of circumstances to bring them to a harmonious resolution on the important points. He continues, in our case, the concurrence of 13 district sovereign wills is requisite under the Confederation to the complete execution of every important measure that proceeds from the Union. It has happened as was to have been foreseen. The measures of the Union have not been executed. The delinquencies of the states have, step by step, matured themselves to an extreme which has at length arrested all the wheels of the national government and brought them to an awful stand. The Congress at this time scarcely possesses the means of keeping up the forms of administration till the states can have time to agree upon a more substantial substitute for the present shadow of a federal government. Things did not come to this desperate extremity at once. The causes which have been specified produced at first only unequal and disproportionate degrees of compliance with the requisitions of the Union. The greater deficiencies of some states furnished the pretext of example and the temptation of interest to the complying or to the least delinquent states. Why should we do more in proportion than those who are embarked with us in the same political voyage? Why should we consent to bear more than our proper share of common burden? These were suggestions which human selfishness could not withstand and which even speculative men who, would, who looked forward to remote consequences could not, without hesitation, combat. Each state, yielding to the persuasive voice of immediate interest or convenience, has successfully withdrawn its support till the frail and tottering edifice seems ready to fall upon our heads and to crush us beneath its ruins. Publius. So Hamilton is laying out the case of why the current government is inadequate. And he is doing so because the same people who are opposing the new constitution were proposing the rules of the Confederacy. And they, they did not want to give up any of their state's powers for the powers of the federal government. And so that's why one of the reasons why the Constitution was so important was it would give the national government the teeth to enforce its decrees. It would give them the mechanism to compel the states to submit to the legitimate government of the, of the federal government.
And I think you can see why the Tenth Amendment was necessary to the appeasement of some of these independent states people. Because the Tenth Amendment then, you know, specifies the fact that that the national government is only allowed to do the things the Constitution says it can do. And by doing things that the Constitution says it can't do, the federal government is violating that. And anything that is not a specific constitutionally enumerated um, responsibility of the federal government is reserved to the states and the people. So that the states do have things that they are sovereign on, that the state can do, that's outside the control of the federal government, so that the states can be different, and they can do different things. But the federal government can do the things that the federal government is supposed to take care of, leaving the states to do the things that the state is supposed to take care of. Um, this is something that has been lost in our modern way of thinking. There are... Um, it's been said, and it's, it's important to remember, that the federal government is the product of the states. The states are not the product of the federal government. The federal government was formed for and by the states to govern the states, but it's a creature of the states. The states are not simply subordinate districts of the federal government. They each have their own sphere of authority and those spheres of authority apply in different manners and in different matters. So that's something to think about. All right, I rambled a little bit today. I hope that's all right with you. Um, but uh, that's it. It's the weekend. So make sure you get yourself to church on Sunday. Worship with the saints. Sit under the teaching of God's word Learn and grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. Have a great weekend. Um, let's see, the, the, the AFC and NFC championship games are this weekend. Hopefully there'll be some good football. We may talk about football on Monday. We'll see. Folks, remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. Go to church on Sunday. We'll see you here on Monday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.